0: Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, And summer's feel hath not been here of late. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, More often is his gold complexion dimmed, And every fair from fair sometimes declines, By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal podcast shall not fade, nor lose possession of that Wit thou growest Nor shall death brag Thou wand rest in his shade When funding cuts And shouldn't fees thou ost So long as men can breathe or eyes can see So long lives Jod And Jod gives life to thee
1: The Jodcast Desperately trying to claim Any money from the taxpayer at all with Megan Argo, David Alt, Michael Bearford, Jen Gupta, Kerry Hebden, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Neil Young. The Jodcast, June 2009 issue. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast and joining me today we've got Stuart and Jen. Hi guys.
2: Hi Dave. Hey Dave. Hi everyone.
1: And in the show this month we're going to find out about the variability of the sun We hear about high-energy astrophysics, we get all the updates on spacecraft, and Ian tells us what you can see in the night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month. Evidence for the origins of millisecond pulsars. The puzzle of crystalline silicates in comets. And Fermi sheds light on high-energy cosmic rays. Fast-spinning radio pulsars with millisecond rotation periods are thought to be the result of a process involving the transfer of material from a companion low-mass star onto a normal pulsar. This accretion process adds mass and angular momentum to the pulsar, resulting in its rotation rate speeding up and the emission of X-rays. Using telescopes around the world, a team of astronomers has, for the first time, discovered evidence of this process taking place. Pulsars are extremely dense neutron stars, left over after massive stars explode as supernovae. They have strong magnetic fields, which generate beams of light and radio waves which sweep across the sky as the pulsar spins. Most pulsars rotate a few times a second, but some, known as millisecond pulsars, rotate hundreds of times a second. Ordinary pulsars in a binary system with a low-mass companion can start to accumulate material in an accretion disk, a flat spinning ring of material around the pulsar. While this disk exists, it is thought that the radio waves characteristic of pulsar would be quenched, and the object would not appear as a normal pulsar. However, when the rate of infalling material slows down and stops, the pulsar's emission would be able to disrupt the accretion disk, blowing material out of the system and allowing the radio emission to resume. Now, a team led by Anne Archibald at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, found evidence of this process taking place in a binary star system 4,000 light-years away. A millisecond pulsar was discovered in the system in 2007, so the team looked back through archived data from several telescopes. What they discovered was a dramatic change in the system over the last decade. Optical observations in 1999 showed a Sun-like star, while observations a year later showed evidence of an accretion disk around the neutron star. By 2002, the evidence for this disk had disappeared. The observations in 2007, made with the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, found a millisecond pulsar spinning 592 times per second. The researchers say that this system appears to be the missing link between millisecond pulsars and accreting binary systems known as low-mass X-ray binaries, and the results were published in the journal Science during May. Models of solar system formation show that comets form at large distances from their parent star. This makes sense, as they are made up largely of frozen material, but a long-standing mystery is how they end up containing tiny silicate crystals, which need very high temperatures to form. These crystals start out in an amorphous form, where their atoms are arranged randomly. At high temperatures, the atoms in these crystals become more ordered, forming what is known as a crystalline lattice. Because they need high temperatures to form, these crystalline silicates were not expected to be found in comets, so how they came to be there is a puzzle. In the 14th of May issue of Nature, a team led by Peter Abraham of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences published the first evidence for the formation of crystalline silicates in the disk around a young, sun-like star. Together with colleagues from Leiden Observatory and the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg, Abraham used the Spitzer Space Telescope to observe the eruptive star E.X. Lupi, in April 2008, during one of its outbursts. When they examined the spectra from these observations, the researchers discovered the infrared signature of silicate crystals in the disk of dust and gas around the star. When they compared their results to similar spectra of E.X. Lupi taken between outbursts, they found that the older observations only showed the presence of amorphous silicates rather than the crystalline form. In the newer observations, taken during the star's outburst, a broad peak corresponding to amorphous silicates was present, but an additional narrow peak at a wavelength of 10 microns was also visible. This narrow feature is likely caused by the presence of forsterite, the magnesium-rich crystalline form of the mineral olivine. The appearance of this additional feature in the spectrum during the star's outburst suggests that crystal formation was happening in the star's disk during the outburst. The researchers think that this is the first time ongoing crystal formation has been observed. They say that the crystals were probably formed on the surface layer of the star's inner disk by heat from the outbursts in a process known as thermal annealing, where a substance is heated to a temperature where some of its bonds break and then reform, altering the material's structure and physical properties. The forsterite crystals detected around E.X. Lupi are just like those found in comets in the solar system, which could have been produced by similar outbursts from our own Sun when it was much younger. There has been much speculation over the cause of an excess of cosmic ray electrons and positrons recently detected by the Attic and Pamela experiments. Suggested sources of this excess not only include galactic pulsars and supernova remnants, but also more exotic explanations such as dark matter annihilations. Now, new results from the Large Area Telescope, or LAT, on board the Fermi satellite, have added new information to the puzzle. Models of cosmic ray electrons and positrons interacting with the interstellar medium predict a featureless distribution in the number of particles with energies between 10 and a few hundred electron volts. However, last year the European satellite PAMELA detected surprisingly large quantities of high-energy positrons while the balloon-borne Attic experiment found a significant peak in the total electron plus positron count at high energies. Like ATIC, the LAT on Fermi is sensitive to the total electron plus positron flux. The new results from Fermi, published in the journal Physical Review Letters on the 4th of May, do show a larger number of particles with energies at around 500 giga volts, but the excess is nowhere near as large as that measured by the Attic experiment. The new results are, however, consistent with the excess of positrons seen by Pamela. While these Fermi observations are the most precise yet at these energies, they are still not enough to either confirm or rule out a particular origin for these high-energy particles. The Fermi-LAT team are planning further observations to reduce the uncertainties and hopefully determine whether the particles are caused by dark matter annihilations or known local sources of electrons such as pulsars and supernova remnants. And finally, May was a busy month in space, with the successful launch of two space telescopes and a servicing mission to Hubble. On the 11th of May, the space shuttle Atlantis took off on the fifth and final flight to service the Hubble Space Telescope. During the 13-day flight, the crew carried out five spacewalks, totaling 36 hours and 56 minutes, successfully installed the Field Camera 3 and the Cosmic Origin spectrograph, and repaired both the Advanced Camera for Surveys and the Space Telescope Imaging spectrograph. The astronauts also replaced all six of Hubble's batteries, launched with the telescope in 1990 and now losing capacity as they age. Other tasks included replacing the fine guidance sensors and all six rate sensor units, the gyroscopes essential to keep the telescope pointing in the right direction. These upgrades will hopefully allow the telescope to keep functioning until 2014, when the James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch. May 14th saw the successful launch of the Herschel and Planck satellites, lifting off together on board an Ariane 5 rocket from the European Space Agency's launch site in French Guiana. Planck is a telescope designed to map the tiny fluctuations of the cosmic microwave background in unprecedented detail, while Herschel is an infrared telescope which will study some of the coldest objects in the universe. Once in space, the two satellites separated from each other in order to travel independently out to a point known as L2, a gravitationally stable orbit 1.5 million kilometres on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. Both satellites are currently undergoing in-flight tests and are so far functioning perfectly.
1: Thanks, Megan. Now, you may remember from last month that we had a bumper show full of interviews from GENAM, the Joint European National Astronomy Meeting. And believe it or not, we still have some more to go. And our first interview, this issue, is with Professor Mike Lockwood of the University of Southampton, who's talking about the variability of solar output.
4: So today's interview is going to be with Mike Lockwood of Southampton University, who's been doing some research on the variability, the long-term variability of the solar output. Um, could you first explain uh, the 11-year cycle of the sun?
5: Yes, the, the sun activity waxes and wanes about 11-year time scale. Mm-hmm. The reason is that essentially it gets its magnetic field in a twist and it has to clear it out, sort it out, and it's just about sorted out and the whole process starts again. And that sort of um, activity cycle that results from that, we know from sunspot records is, is the by far the normal behavior of our sun. Um, over the, the last few millennia we see cycles that we can relate to that magnetic activity cycle on the sun.
4: So, yeah, were you referring to uh, a longer term a cycle, a longer like We are just coming out of a grand maxima. How long did the grand maxima last for?
5: On top of these, these cycles, 11-year cycles of activity, as you say, there are long-term variations. Now, uh, the whole space age has been embedded within a, a grand maxima of solar activity. By grand maxima, I mean we can tell that it's in the top 10% of solar activity levels, and has been for about uh, 50, 60 years. We can tell this from cosmogenic isotopes, cosmic ray products that get deposited in reservoirs that we can date. So this is things like tree trunks, um, ocean sediments, ice sheets, anything where we can drill in and date the the deposition. And we can see the 11-year cycles in those cosmogenic isotopes, but we also see they're superposed on these long-term variations. And we've been in this top 10% of activity for about uh, um uh, 50 to 60 years now um the lowest that uh, minimum that we've seen uh, not in the whole record there are low ones but the the famous one is the Maunder minimum mm-hmm. which persisted from about 1750 to uh, 1650 to 1700 so the, the second half of the 17th century and we see that in cosmogenic isotopes and we class that as a grand solar minimum mm-hmm. And so you seem to go from minimum to maximum over a timescale of three, four, five hundred years in general when you look at the whole sequence. And then the minima and the maxima last for somewhere between 50 or 100 years. Okay.
4: But um, it would be naive to assume that as we fall out of the ground maxima that this would decrease the global warming. It's more complicated.
5: Uh, yes. I mean, I wish that were true. Um, I wish that the sun were coming to our rescue and um, and it would mitigate the effects of, of uh, man-made greenhouse gas trapping. Um, unfortunately, although we are now seeing lower irradiance values than we've ever seen before, um, as they say, since records began, but...
6: Sure, in could the you explain that, please? Uh, yeah.
5: Oh, okay. Irradiance is... Um, it's the, we call it the total solar radiance. It's the integral of the power uh, over the whole spectrum. So from UV through to infrared. It's dominated by the visible wavelengths, in fact. And it's the power per unit area falling on the disk that's presented to the sun by, by our planet and its atmosphere. So it's, it's a, a number typically around 1,366 is the sort of canonical number. Of, uh, of the what used to be called the solar constant. But now we know it varies. We call it the total solar irradiance. And it goes up and down. Uh, paradoxically, when there are more spots on the sun, um, uh, there are also more what are called small flux tubes, uh, called faculi. And these, these small flux tubes, they actually increase the brightness. And for every sunspot, there's a 1,000 faculi. And so actually the net effect of more spots is the brighter sun. We've seen about a 0.1% variation from between solar minimum and solar maximum. But now the present solar minimum has hit lower values than we've seen in the solar minimum minimum before. Um, the other thing to qualify is, is, I said since records began. Unfortunately, records in this case only begin in 1978. So it's, we have only a very short sequence. Even that sequence is hard to put together. Uh, radiometry from space is a very difficult thing to do to these levels of accuracy. And there is debate about whether the various instruments have been cross-calibrated correctly and all the rest of it. But we're, we're gaining more confidence that, that we're, we're doing that right. So we are seeing lower values, but it's a very small effect. Uh, To put it in context, the sort of changes that we get out of changes in Earth's orbit around the sun are much greater. Okay. Um, ten, at least ten times larger. And in fact, they have most effect not through changing the total solar radiance, but actually by changing the pattern of insulation of, so the, the the way, the pattern of the way the sunlight falls on, on our planet makes big changes to the climate, and that's really what drives the ice ages and things. So these measurements don't, uh, aren't a harbinger for us being plunged into an, an ice age, um, which would not be good, but nor are they actually, uh, anything to get excited about in terms of, of mitigating the effects of man-made global warming.
3: So the, we're dropping out of a, a grand maxima, and so you say we're gonna, uh, for the sort of next 50, 60 years. What, so what implications does that have for us? Is it, are we, is the temperature going to pretty much stay the same? Is it going to drop or?
5: Uh, let's deal with the global warming issue first. There does seem to be some effect that takes solar variability and amplifies it in our climate record. Um, there are a few postulated mechanisms for this. For example, the ultraviolet part of the spectrum is much more variable than the visible part but it doesn't carry a great power with it, and it tends to be absorbed high up in the atmosphere. But then there are theories why this large amplitude variation might percolate down and have an effect in the troposphere. Most of the ultraviolet is absorbed in the stratosphere by ozone, of course. So some of it might actually make it through to the surface. So that and another slightly, much more controversial suggestion is cosmic rays help produce clouds, and so you introduce a solar modulation that way. Um, but, um, there does seem to be something that, that amplifies the solar effect. The solar effect consistently comes out a bit bigger than you would expect, factor of three or four, but still quite small compared to the other drivers in, in, in terms of climate. But actually, I'd, I'd like to mention an almost completely different thing, which is an interesting facet of all this, um, which I didn't have time to get onto in my talk earlier today. And that is the space weather side of this, because, Lower solar activity generally means lower average disruption, the sort of thing the sun can do. The sun can disrupt satellite communications. It can cause satellites to to die. Um, you can embed charge in, and, and burn out satellite parts. Um, power di- systems are disrupted, all sorts of things like that. There's a whole plethora of what we call space weather effects. Now, on average, they should... Decline as we come out, and we have this been looking at the sun in a strangely active period for the last 50 years. However, there is evidence that the biggest single events, the biggest storms, actually all take place at rather middling solar activity levels. So halfway between the Maunder Minimum and now, for example, the the big flare that started the whole field off was the Carrington flare in 1859, which was for, observed by uh, Richard Carrington. And it was the first time we really saw the effects on Earth of of a solar flare. And there was a lot of debate about it at the time, but we now understand that that interaction chain. And there are a number of papers around that, that estimate the global damage that would be done by an event of that size. And we're talking tens to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of damage. I mean, this is in terms of lost systems and and lost... It's it's incredible. The knock-on effects are huge. Now, we can tell from the, the solar energetic particles that are produced by such events produce nitrates in the atmosphere that are then deposited into ice sheets. And so we can look at these events and we can see the event that happened during the Apollo era that would have killed all the Apollo astronauts. All these events we can see in the nitrate record in the ice sheet. And they all occur at rather middling solar activity levels. It, it, they don't occur at the highest levels. So paradoxically, it may well be that um, we get fewer events overall and smaller events on average, but the big ones are more likely to occur. I, I, I make it, draw an analogy, rather like losing your temper. If you lose your temper on a regular basis, it's no big deal. You lose your temper every day. If you're one of those people that actually keep the cool, you know, store it up, then when you do go, then tends to be a goodie, okay? And it's a little bit like that with the sun, that I think if the activity levels are on average lower, that when it does go with a big event, you tend to get a, a super large event. And so there are possible implications, because when you look at, like, the insurance industry, what they worry about is coordinated failures. They they can set premiums based on the idea that these things happen at random, but when there's an underlying cause that will hold cause a whole load of things to happen at the same time, like satellites going out, power distribution grids across the world being affected rather than just in one region, then they have a big problem. And so coordinated failures are a, are a real problem. And so these super events could be quite significant. And I can't say that for sure. We've never been here before. We haven't been a high-tech society in a average level sun before. We've only ever been in a high level active sun before. Interesting times.
6: So as the sun is already overdue in its uh, life cycle, um, what do we have to expect to happen in the next few years?
5: Oh, sooner or later, there is evidence, there was evidence presented in the session earlier today that what's really happening is the old cycle hasn't finished yet. And, and, uh, th- this actually homes in on a big debate about how the sun works and how, uh, these, the cycles replace each other. Um, I personally believe that you need flux of a new polarity to emerge, make its way to the poles, and it cancels out the, the flux. And you tend to get long low minima where it's having trouble getting it started in, in this new, di- in the opposite, with the opposite di- direction field. So, the evidence is rather, because we still don't have a nice simple solar minimum streamer belt and things, so the evidence rather is that the new cycle is not doing enough to replace the old cycle and we're stuck in the middle for a little while. That would be my view of of of, of what's actually happening now. Um, I think something rather similar happened uh, during the space actually, right at the beginning, because the largest solar cycle we know about and the most active sun that we know about par none, actually, almost, was around in the late 50s, early 60s. It was a huge peak in the solar activity then. And then the cycle after that was very strange. It was very long, it was very low level, and I think the sun was having trouble getting rid of the remnant magnetic flux left over from the previous cycle, and we may be in that sort of situation. Um, I would expect from here that the average activity levels will decline. They may kick up again for a bit and over a two, three hundred year period we will we'll end up in another of the grand solar minimum like the Maunder minimum. So um but one can never second guess the sun. We we don't understand this process, the dynamo process, well enough to actually predict what what's actually gonna happen. Um uh, we're making we're making strides in describing it but a true predictive capability is still beyond us and so I can't tell if it's going to kick on off again or or drop down but on a long enough time scale centuries then it is going to drop and we will head from this maximum right down into a a maunder minimum Um, but I would never put any money on when that will happen (laughs) I would
6: be unwise to anyway so for the listeners, could you just explain why this uh, recent solar cycle is so peculiar in comparison to the past ones? Okay, the, the, the,
5: there's a lot of things about that. I've mentioned that the power we receive from the sun has hit values lower than we've ever seen before. The sunspot number always goes to near zero at every solar minimum. One of the rather deceptive things about the sun is that the, the number of spots on it, which is a useful indicator because it goes right back to about 1650 we have, pretty good measurements from amateur observers and the like, right back to to, the, to then. And so it's a very useful record like that. But one of the problems with it is, is that every solar minimum the sun goes clean of spots, irrespective of the underlying state of the sun. So people tend to think that it gets a fresh start at every solar minimum, whereas actually there is a residual effect from what's gone before uh, in there. So... The geomagnetic activity that the sun drives is the lowest that we've seen, um, actually for about 80 years. You've got to go about eight, back 80 years because we have a good long record of geomagnetic activity record of uh, data. Um, the open magnetic flux that we can deduce from spacecraft measurements is uh, at an all-time low. Uh, again, we can extrapolate that back with geomagnetic activity records. And we have to go back to about 1920 before we find values this low. Um, The biggest thing, the thing that's really surprising, is the solar wind is at its thinnest. The density of the solar wind is lower than we've ever seen before. Um, Now, I can't tell you how that fits in the long-term context because we haven't yet devised a way of reconstructing that from uh, back before the space age. But that's a really big change, and, and that, that really is something we, ha- we don't understand, and, and um, so that that's interesting. Unfortunately, I can't put that in historical context for you, because all we have are the space age data on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of parameters that are, are actually showing an all-time low. The magnetic field that we receive from the sun in interplanetary space is, is lower than at any time since, again, reconstructive values back
6: in the 20s, so. Until the recent years, the actual cosmic ray intensity has been increasing um, despite this drop in uh, solar activity. Could you expand on that, please? But It's not despite, it's because of. Uh, cosmic rays, are sh- we're
5: shielded from, well, there's two effects. There's the geomagnetic field, and that changes very slowly and in a way that actually we know quite a lot about. So the geomagnetic shield is is understood and can be factored out of this. The other is the solar magnetic field, and and we know, you can see very clear 11-year cycles, but when the sun is at a a, an activity maximum, you get a minimum number of cosmic rays. Because what really shields us is the magnetic field that comes out of the sun in the solar wind, and it's actually structure in that 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 can actually scatter individual cosmic rays. So they kind of play pinball as they try to get in, and and the number reaching us at the center of the heliosphere Goes down, and it goes down most when you've got the highest activity. So until recently, um, uh, the cosmic ray fluxes were just going up and up, which is a symptom of this lower and lower solar activity. Um, somebody, uh, uh, Ola Wolfendale, commented in the session earlier that that actually in the last few weeks it's turned over. Well. You know it takes more than a few weeks to determine a trend, so that may indeed be the start of the of the next activity cycle, and things are are going down but it um we've seen a lot of false dawns in the people from three years ago people saying, "Oh, here's a new solar cycle, and it hasn't happened yet it keeps all the symptoms of a new solar cycle keep fizzling out um it is they are strange days we haven't been here before, and of course that makes it exciting days for for scientists because It's only when things change that the the, the true mechanisms become revealed. So it's it's going to test all our theories in lots of ways.
3: I was just going to to give us a a a brief background on what Ulysses does. And
5: Uh, Ulysses was a joint ESA NASA mission. Um, Doesn't get a lot of publicity, which is a shame because it's done something incredibly valuable. Um, What it does, what it's done, is is it's been able to show that there's no latitudinal structure in the heliospheric field. Um, We have a good idea why this is. This wasn't a prediction, though. It was one of those sort of post-dictions where everybody said, oh, of course, and came up with a reason after they they knew the fact. But what Ulysses found was that the radial field was just about independent of the heliographic latitude. And that's really useful, because it means you can take a point measurement and work out the total magnetic flux in the heliosphere. And that's the key parameter for, for example, the cosmic ray shield. and we think it's because, actually, when you get near the sun, the so-called plasma beta is, is very, <laughs> think about it, is very low. The, the, the Things are dominated by the magnetic pressure. And that allows slightly non-radial solar wind to actually even out the magnetic field close into the sun. And then, of course, it's frozen in, and that stays throughout the heliosphere. So it means we can measure at one point... The sun rotates, so we can average out the longitudinal structure of the sun by just averaging over a solar rotation period. And we don't have to worry about the latitudinal structure because Ulysses has told us that there isn't any. And as I say, we think we now understand that in terms of the magnetic pressure dominating... The flow close in, and you get slightly non-radial flow until the, the, the tangential pressure is equalized, which means the radial magnetic field is, is equalized. So we think this is sort of sets in very close to the sun, and then we can see that. So it, it's actually provided this incredibly useful result that lets us quantify the whole heliosphere from a single point measurement. Um, yes, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? I, I, when I first found the result in the library, uh, I, I worked right through a number of things and I thought all I need now is, is some way of putting in a model variation for the latitude structure of the of the heliospheric field. And this was I went to this paper by Andre Bolog from Ulysses and I read it. I was very, very tired. I'd been working flat out for, for a long period of time. And I read it, and I thought, I am hallucinating. I am reading on the page, not what it says, but what I want to read. So I just closed it up. I was seriously quite worried about myself. I closed it up, and I went home and had a a bottle of wine with my wife, and then came back in the morning and hardly dared open the journal up again. It was in science. I opened it up and read it, and it still said what I'd read the night before. So I was quite relieved about my sanity, but I was also um, more than happy because it meant that I had a way of taking these near-Earth measurements and making a, a deduction about the, the Sun and the heliosphere globally. It's an incredibly useful result, and Ulysses doesn't get much publicity. It's, it's been very, very valuable in a very quiet way. It's not not produced anything spectacular, um, but it, it's, uh, it's been very valuable. And it it was the only satellite that could have done this. It's the only satellite to systematically look at the heliosphere outside of the ecliptic plane of the planets we've been our view has been very much from within the ecliptic plane so we were bound to find something really interesting uh, from it um, and we did
4: yeah um i was just going to ask about the coronal holes because you're saying magnetic field strength is independent of latitude
5: mm-hmm.
4: are the coronal holes too small for that for that to screw the result I mean, I'm assuming that the magnetic field does change over the coronal holes. It
5: probably doesn't change. Um, at the, this independ- this independence of latitude, it really sets in at about um, 10 to 20 solar radii away from the sun. As I say, the, the, the flow is probably just a few degrees off radial. Normally the solar wind flow is pretty close to radial, but you can get these slightly non radial flows that equalize it out, and it's a gradual process until the tangential pressure is, is equalized. The coronal holes are really where, what you find is where the magnetic field lines, um, don't open up much. You get faster flow coming out, and it's so, it's to do with the divergence of the field lines from the surface out through the coronal atmosphere. And what you're really seeing in coronal holes is where the material has been taken out in mm-hmm. fast solar wind. So, in a way, that's an almost independent thing from from this latitudinal invariance. So the coronal holes don't actually mm-hmm. perturb this, and it holds whether there are... Coronal holes going round underneath, or, or normal photosphere, it, it, it doesn't affect this result. Um, but the it may even be the other way round that this effect actually changes the divergence of magnetic flux tubes as you come out into the heliosphere. That certainly affects the speed of the solar wind, and that's what produces its fast solar wind that produces the the lack of density in the coronal hole. So it may almost be the other way round that coronal holes tend to form. In a way that is controlled by how the solar field changes as it, as it, uh, as you move out into the heliosphere.
6: Okay. So just for the listeners, could you explain what a coronal hole is?
5: A coronal hole is a, is an area on the sun. Um, it's almost like a, a hole in the, the atmosphere. So if you picture, if you think of the, the sun being lagged with an atmosphere, You can see in, because it's very hot, the solar atmosphere, you see it in things like X-ray images of the sun, you actually can see through to the photosphere, which is relatively cool and dark, but only in certain patches. And it looks like a, a sort of cladding around the sun where chunks have been taken out. And what that really is, is you're getting fast solar wind coming out from those coronal holes, and that depletes the, the atmosphere, so you get lower plasma density, and you can, uh, you don't get the emission from the hot, dense gas that you have elsewhere. So they're really regions where a lot of flux emerges out into the heliosphere. And it's probably true that most of the flux we see in the heliosphere is actually originated from uh, polar coronal holes. Um, uh, there is one school of thought that says that all the fast solar wind we see is, is comes out of coronal holes and then the slow solar wind actually comes from the edges of coronal holes and nothing from in between. But that's not the only way of looking at it. So. Okay.
6: Okay. Um, yeah, just to finish off, can you tell me a little bit about your research please, what you do, just uh, in a summary? Uh, I'm one of these people that do an awful lot
5: of different things. <laughs> I, I guess I get bored easily so I move around. Um, I started off uh studying the aurora that's how i got into this um because understanding the aurora uh, one of the key things is understanding how the energy gets from the solar wind flow into uh, earth's magnetosphere and is manifested in the aurora so when you look following the energy which uh, led to an understanding of the coupling between the solar wind and and um earth's magnetic field and that same energy is essentially drives or uh, geomagnetic activity. And then uh, I got interested in why the historic records of geomagnetic activity were so different from today's values. Uh, um, There's an index called the AA Index that was put together by a priest, actually, um, manually looking at at continuous records from Australia and from uh, the UK three hour by three hour, he did a hundred years worth and um, three hour by three hours. So he was a priest, in fact, so um he obviously had time on his hands and uh used it very well because it was an incredibly valuable record and he did a really good job. Um uh it's very accurate what he did. And it shows this long term change and I kept thinking, well why is that? But and because I had done the research on how energy gets into the magnetosphere, I understood how I could relate that to long-term changes in the solar wind. And that's where the Ulysses story came in, because then I said, OK, that's all very well. It's telling me about the solar wind and the magnetic field at Earth, but I want to know about the whole sun type thing. And uh, and that's where the Ulysses result came in so useful. Um, because that led to the inevitable conclusion that it's just about becoming accepted now, although it's taken 10 years, um, uh, there's been a lot of resistance to the idea of long term variability in in the in the solar atmosphere. Um, that sort of led me into climate change stuff. And uh, I've been interested in, in in the in analyze in the analyses of long term climate change and what it does and doesn't show you. Um, normally my role has been to prove that potential solar links actually don't hold up. Um, and so, there's no point if there isn't. I think there's no point in pursuing the idea that there is, and you're better to get that out the way, and and start dealing with things properly. So, but I'm always interested. I'm I, I take an interested view in in these things, and and. Global climate change science is, is fascinating stuff, actually. There's so many elements of, of science in there that it's, it's unbelievable. Um, it's really interesting. So one can bury oneself into all sorts of things like ocean circulation patterns and it, it's amazing. But out of that as well comes the use of long-term records like the cosmogenic isotope records. You have to, there will be a climate signal in in the cosmogenic isotope records, in the same way as geomagnetic field signal and, and a solar signal. And you have to treat these things in a rather holistic way so that you deal with everything in a self-consistent way. It's a really interesting area. So I do all
1: sorts of stuff. <laughs> I enjoy it all. <laughs> Anyone got any other questions?
6: Okay, so thank you very much, Mike. Okay, you're welcome.
1: Thanks, Mike, Michael, Kerry and Neil. Now from news of the sun to news of things that are happening on the
2: moon. Stuart? What you got? Well, the Japanese Space Agency, that's JAXA's Kaguya spacecraft, has been orbiting the moon since um, near the end of 2007, and it came to the end of its nominal mission in February this year and has been in an extended phase, um, doing some more observations. It's basically been um, doing some global mapping of the lunar surface and some magnetic field measurements and measuring the gravity field around the moon. And it's also been returning some great HD movies, which we've been linking to on the JODcast in previous episodes um, a while back. As it's coming to the end of its mission, they're going to crash it into the moon on June the 10th. That's the current plan. And it will be at 6.30pm GMT, which unfortunately means that um, Europe, Africa and the Americas will not be able to see it hit the moon. But if you live anywhere from India eastwards through China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand and I think as far as Hawaii, you should be able to have a chance of seeing the impact. It'll be just past full moon and it'll be hitting the dark side of the moon. There isn't a lot of dark side visible, and it'll be hitting somewhere near, down towards the South Pole. So if you happen to be around at that sort of time GMT, 6.30pm GMT, and you're in the right hemisphere of the Earth, then go and have a look, and you might be able to see a flash. Probably not, though, because the moon will be very bright, and I suspect that Kaguya won't make very much of a a flash when it hits. Now, Stuart, I...
1: Something that springs to mind is that, um, you said that Kaguya is, uh, its nominal finish date was back in February. Yes. And it just brings to mind that, that a couple of the Mars missions, uh, Hubble as well, seem to have got to a nominal date and then kept on going, uh, a lot longer than, than scientists expected. Things like Voyager as well. Do scientists give slightly more conservative dates for the nominal lens of missions or do they expect them to go on further or, or how is it in the, the scientific world?
2: Well, you're right. There's definitely quite a few missions which have far exceeded their nominal lifetimes. I mean, the Mars Exploration Rovers were supposed to last or were, were built to last. Their warranty period was 90 days and they've been going a lot longer than 90 days now. Um, and depending on the type of mission, it there could be hard limits and soft limits. So for the Mars Exploration Rovers... They get their energy from, from the solar panels, so they can keep going as long as there's sunlight. They have problems when it gets into the Martian winter and they have to power down a bit and not use as much of their electronics to, to conserve the power and keep the basic systems going. But as long as they, they don't have any major problems, then they can keep going and then basically it's it's down to mechanical things continuing to work so the wheels on the rovers being able to keep turning um at the moment spirit is is a bit stuck on mars it's it's had a problem and is stuck in some sand but so that, so that's the type of thing that could affect the the spirit rover things like voyager um have a power source which can keep it powered the main problem in keeping the voyager mission going is the cost of operating ground stations on the earth which can detect the the signal from voyager because it's getting fainter and fainter as it goes further and further away from us so that's that's just purely down to cost as to how long you keep things like the voyager mission going things like herschel and Planck, which are the european space agency missions in order to keep their instruments very cold to make sensitive detections they have to use helium and they only have a limited amount of helium on board and eventually that gets used up and that will be the, the end of the mission. Um, because unfortunately we can't send big tanks of helium to L2, which is the point in space one and a half million kilometers away from the Earth. It's an awful lot further than the Hubble and it's hard enough to send servicing missions to Hubble. So getting to L2 is, is even trickier. So for Herschel and Planck, they were pretty solid end of missions and it's basically limited by helium. But you're right. that a lot of these, these, um, warranty periods are, seem to be in, extremely conservative and so the 90 days for the mars exploration rovers was obviously underselling how well they were engineered
1: Mm -hmm. it's a bit like washing machines then where you get your warranty for just a year but you hope that it keeps on going
2: yes exactly
1: past that okay and there's recently been a mission to hubble to do some repairs hasn't there
7: yeah that's right dave so servicing mission four has finished successfully to the hubble space telescope
2: I don't know if you saw, Jen, but there was a, a really great video on on the internet taken by the astronauts on board SDS-125. That's the Atlantis shuttle mission to, to the Hubble. So they they had a video from inside the spatial Atlantis with the astronauts getting their commands from the ground and saying things and then pressing buttons and making the, the shuttle gradually lower down after they have released Hubble from the Canadarm. It's a really bizarre perspective that I've never seen before from inside the shuttle. It was it felt quite normal, which was really bizarre when you realised that you were several hundred miles up and looking at the Hubble Space Telescope. So it was great to see the shuttle slowly backing away from the Hubble and it appearing to drift off with the Earth in the background. Wow. And
1: we've got a link to that in the show notes. Yes, we do. Wonderful.
7: Also, the 29th of May marked the 90th anniversary of a Royal Astronomical Expedition to the African island of Principe, which was led by Sir Arthur Eddington to observe the total solar eclipse.
2: So that was a very famous expedition.
7: Yes, it was. The idea behind this expedition was that they were testing Einstein's theory of relativity. And they did this by observing the Hyades cluster, which happened to be right behind the sun at the time of the solar eclipse. Now, the idea behind this is that because the sun is so massive, the light from the stars will be bent by its gravitational field. This is known as gravitational lensing now, but it was a pretty new idea back then. So the position of these stars on the sky will change compared to when they're observed in the night sky when the sun is not around. And they found that the positions of the stars shifted by 1.75 arc seconds.
2: So not a lot, really?
7: Not a lot, but enough to prove that Einstein was right and Newton was wrong. Researchers from the University of Oxford and the Royal Observatory Edinburgh have recreated this journey in celebration of the anniversary. You can find out more on their website, 1919Eclipse.org, where they've been blogging about their journey. They've returned now. It's quite an interesting read.
2: Very good.
1: Uh, Now, uh, let's move on to our next interview, which is with Dr. Jim Hinton of the University of Leeds. And he's going to be talking about ground based gamma ray astronomy. So, we're here with Dr. Jim Hinton
6: from the University of Leeds, whose interests mainly focus on high energy non thermal astrophysics. So, can you tell us a bit more about your research, please?
8: My work, as you say, is sort of centered around the high energy astrophysics uh, area, mostly in, in gamma ray astronomy. So, I've been working. Uh, for quite some time on the, the Hess Very High Energy Gamma-ray Telescope System and some multi-wavelength follow-up observations of the gamma-ray sources that we found with Hess in X-ray and radio and so on. Now a lot of my time is going into a development of a new project called CTA, the Cherenkov Telescope Array, which is going to be a much better Very high Energy Gamma-ray Telescope built in a, in a few years' time.
6: I just mentioned um, arrays and telescopes for detecting gamma rays. Could you explain a little bit more about how we go about doing that, so the sort of differences between conventional optical and infrared telescopes?
8: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an unusual technique that we have, and it's, it's very, very different to, to a lot of, of other astronomy. So most high-energy astronomy is done with satellite-based detectors just because the Earth's atmosphere becomes uh, opaque to, to high-energy photons. So our gamma rays don't reach the ground, so the only way we're able to do this from the ground is by detecting not the primary gamma rays, but the signature they produce interacting in the atmosphere. So what basically happens is that a high-energy photon will produce a cascade of particles, electrons, positrons, and more photons, which grows. Those particles in the shower, which are travelling fast enough, emit what's called Cherenkov radiation, which is beamed towards the ground. This is radiation in UV optical wavelengths, which we can then detect with a more or less conventional optical telescope on the ground.
6: So in recent years we've had a lot of papers from the Auger project and other things about correlation with cosmic rays. Could you mention or could you explain anything further about
8: that? Okay, yeah, so I mean Auger is, is, a, is a detector measuring cosmic rays directly, but one of the things we're trying to do is, is find out about cosmic ray sources by looking at the gamma rays that are produced when cosmic rays interact inside their sources. So over the last few years we've we've found out a lot more about galactic sources of of cosmic rays we see now in in gamma rays the the shells of supernova remnants glowing in TeV gamma rays showing that particles are being accelerated there the results from Auger imply implied that the the ultra high energy cosmic rays are being accelerated in in active galaxies and with with HESS and gamma rays we see nearby galaxies such as Centaurus A where there is hints of a cluster of ultra energy cosmic rays also emit TV gamma radiation, implying particle acceleration, at least to TV energies. Of course the ultra energy cosmic rays have energies you know, eight orders of magnitude higher. So this is kind of a different regime. So
6: how are very high energy gamma rays uh, useful for um, probing these regions of uh, acceleration for
8: cosmic rays? Basically, I mean the problem we have with most of the cosmic rays at, at energies you know below the, the Auger range is that they have very large deflections in magnetic fields in our galaxy and extra galactic magnetic fields, such that we lose all information about about where the, the cosmic rays come from. So if we want to know where most of the cosmic rays are accelerated, we have to find this, some tracer for the cosmic rays that tells us what's happening in inside the sources. So every now and again, the cosmic ray will interact with a particle in the, in the gas, you know, a hydrogen atom, or a nucleus of, of helium and so on, And this interaction will produce pions, we have a strong interaction, and those neutral pions will decay and produce gamma rays. So every one of these collisions is going to produce photons, and if we have something like a 10 TeV proton that interacts in its source, it will typically produce photons of about 1 TeV energy. So this gives us a way to look inside the sources and see what's happening there. Mm.
6: And just for the listeners, could you describe or explain what a very high-energy gamma ray actually is?
8: Yeah, okay, so I didn't, I didn't define it. So here we're talking about TV photons, so 10 to the 12 uh, electron volts. So these are basically light, which is a million times more energetic than, than very hard X-rays, which in turn are only a million times more, more. Uh, and, well, okay, they're a thousand times more energetic to a million times more energetic than, than optical light. So we're talking about something as far away from the optical at high energies as the radio is from, from the optical in, at low energy. So, but yes, it's just electromagnetic radiation at the highest energies where we can still make uh, detections of cosmic sources.
6: So are there any major differences between detection of MEV and TEV sources?
8: Yeah, I mean, the, the MEV instrument that we have flying at the moment is, is called integral. So this is a sort of soft gamma-ray uh, instrument. In the MEV, we, you sometimes still see line emissions, nuclear lines, in TEV, basically, we, we know that the, the only processes that can produce these very high-energy photons are to do with particle acceleration. So in the sort of hard X-ray domain, it's still possible to have thermal emission from things that are very, very hot. For example, the accretion disks uh, around black holes, very close into the, the black hole, can, be, can become hot enough to produce uh, 100 KEV photons or so, but we know... If we go this million times higher in energy, basically nothing's been hot enough to produce thermal TV emissions since you know, a microsecond after the Big Bang or so. So, we're always seeing their particles accelerated. So somehow a small fraction of the particles get an unfair share of the of the energy and, and reach these very high energies. So this this sort of quite fundamental differences between these low energy gamma rays and the ones we see with with Hess.
6: So what are the advantages of building a a detector on the ground?
8: Okay I mean the the main problem you have with with a space based instrument as you go to higher and higher energies is its physical size so if you if you build an x-ray telescope and your detector is you know a few square centimeters or so you might still get several photons per hour or so from from a cosmic source but all the sources we we see have very steep spectra which means that the the rate of, of photons arriving is dropping quite fast with, with energy so that by the time you reach GEV energies the biggest detector we have is the recently launched Fermi detector which is about a square meter but at the highest energies that Fermi sees some tens of, of GEV they might see only you know a couple of photons per year so if you want to do TEV uh, astronomy you need something which is much much bigger than a square meter and of course this gets very difficult to launch into space extremely expensive so using this ground-based indirect technique, our collection area is basically limited only by the size of this pool of of Cherenkov light on the ground, and our telescope can go anywhere inside that that pool, which gives us basically 100,000 square metres of of collection area, typically. So in many orders of magnitude, more photons than we could ever get with a space-based instrument.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim and Neil. And of course, what better segue is there from ground-based gamma-ray astronomy to ground-based visible astronomy? Here's the night sky with Ian Morrison.
9: Well, the night sky in June. June is perhaps not the best month to be an astronomer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's dark for just a few hours, and in fact, if you're in the north of Scotland, it doesn't really get fully dark at all. But there is actually a little compensation to that that we'll come to later on. Well, if you have a look... At the sky at around sort of eleven p m and you've got to sort of wait up that long before it really does get dark first of all, overhead towards the north is the lovely constellation of Ursa Major the great Bear, and of course, the part that we always think about is in fact called the plough in the United Kingdom, but in America, it's the big Dipper, which I believe is named after the ladle that the farmer's wife used to dish out the Soup at lunchtime for the farmhands on the farm. That's actually full of interesting objects. And if you go to the Night Sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, or just put Night Sky into Google, you'll find a fairly detailed description of Ursa Major, one of our most interesting constellations. As one moves southwards, one first crosses the constellation of Hercules. And it has what's called a keystone of stars. Wider at the top than at the bottom, like the keystone at the top of a bridge, and halfway up, or perhaps sorry, two thirds of the way up, the right hand side, binoculars will show a slightly fuzzy blob. With a telescope you see the most beautiful and magnificent globular cluster that we have in the northern hemisphere is called M thirteen, the thirteenth object in Messier's catalogue of interesting objects in the sky. Below Hercules is a large and not particularly prominent constellation called Ophiuchus. Interestingly, part of the ecliptic, the path of the sun, goes through Ophiuchus. There are actually thirteen constellations along the ecliptic, but uh, this one is conveniently forgot. I mean, would you like anyone to say, or would you like to say, I'm an Ophiuchan? You know, what 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 star sign are you? So, it's perhaps not surprising it's being ignored. The sun actually spends longer in Ophiuchus than it does in Scorpius. Well, to the right of Hercules is a rather lovely little arc of stars, making up what we call Corona Borealis. That's the northern crown, rather like Aurora Borealis are the northern lights. And to the right of Corona Borealis is Bootes, with one very nice bright star called Arcturus. Now, rising in the east, towards the middle towards the end of june we have this lovely part of the sky comprising the constellations of cygnus the swan vega in the constellation of lyra the lyre and below them the constellation of aquila the eagle with its bright star altair along with deneb which is the brightest star in cygnus deneb vega altair make up is what is called the summer triangle I believe that name was made up by Sir Patrick Moore. Part of the constellation of Cygnus the Swan looks very much like a cross, the central part, and that's called the Northern Cross. If you've got binoculars, try starting from Altair and move about a third of the way towards Vega. As you do so, you actually cross a fairly dark part of the sky. It's called the Cygnus Rift. You are looking towards the Milky Way, but there's rather few stars visible in this region, not because they're not there, but because there's a great cloud of dust in the way, so we don't see them. But rather nicely in front of that cloud of dust, we see a rather nice little asterism, or possibly a cluster. It's actually called Brocky's Cluster, but it's more normally known as the Coat Hanger, because it looks just like a little Coat Hanger upside down a line of stars, and then a little hook, which actually is the wrong way round, as we see it with binoculars from here, but well worth looking for. Just go one third of the way from Altair towards Vega, and you should spot it quite easily. Now, below Ophiuchus, we have two summer constellations, Scorpius with its lovely star, Antares, a red giant, and then to the left of that we have Sagittarius, the teapot. Now, sadly, from the northern climes of the United Kingdom, we do not see these very well. So it's a good reason to go on holiday to somewhere like the Adriatic or Cyprus. And in fact, there, they appear much higher in the sky. And you can actually see not only the lovely red star Antares, but some of the nebulae and clusters in Sagittarius as well. And I'll come back to Sagittarius when I talk about the southern hemisphere a little later on. So there we are, you don't have many hours to observe the sky but it actually is quite an interesting sky if you do take the effort. Now what about the planets? Well Jupiter is visible in the morning sky it rises in fact at about one o'clock at the beginning of the month and by about midnight, both UT by the way, at month's end. It's actually getting further away from the Sun as one would expect and so getting somewhat easier to pick up, it it rises rather sooner than the Sun does. However, because the ecliptic has a relatively low angle to the horizon, and because Jupiter is nearly at the bottom of the ecliptic in terms of declination, it never gets very high in the sky, um, no more than about 25 degrees. So we see it through quite a bit of atmosphere, and that does actually upset our view. One thing to do if you're using a small telescope is to try and remove some of the colour because the atmosphere acts like a little refractor. It it splits the image of Jupiter into the various colours which are sort of not quite on top of each other, so blurring it. If you use either a green filter, say, or even better, I've actually used what's called an O3 filter. It's a narrow band, almost a single wavelength filter in the green then, of course, you have no refraction effects and you certainly get a clearer image. Its magnitude is slowly increasing from about minus 2.5 to minus 2.7. Well, Saturn. We've had a good few months observing Saturn fairly high in the sky. It's lying in Leo, which is fairly high along the ecliptic, but actually it's quite low below Leo. It sort of sticks down between two other constellations. Um, But nevertheless... It's still visible as the sky darkens after sunset. The rings are almost edge-on. They're about 3.5 degrees to the line of sight at the moment. And that makes Saturn rather less bright than it would normally be. It's only at magnitude of about plus one, which isn't really all that bright. There is a compensation to this, though, and I'll come to that in the highlights. The rings, by the way get almost perfectly edge-on later in the year, although not too easy to see from where we are, and it won't be until 2016 before they're wide open again. Mercury. Well, it reaches what is called Western elongation on the 13th of June. That's when it lies at its greatest angle from the sun and is seen before sunrise. Again, however, its elevation will be very low, and binoculars will almost certainly be needed to spot it. And look, be careful using binoculars, observe before the sun rises. At magnitude plus 0.6, it's not all that bright, but you may well spot it if you have a very low northeastern horizon. Mars and Venus are also in the morning sky. Mars still remains low, but it's in- rising increasingly earlier than the sun as the month progresses and with a magnitude of plus 1.2 is actually not that difficult to spot. Even so, it's not going to make an angle of more than about 23 degrees to the horizon before the sun rises, so it'll be fairly low down in the sky, and we really have to wait perhaps till October-September to begin to see it well. And finally, Venus, as I've just said, that's also visible in the pre-dawn sky It will only be about 14 degrees above the horizon as the sun rises on the 1st of June and becomes somewhat easier to spot later in the month. It's at magnitude about minus 4.2 at the middle of the month and in fact just to the lower right of Mars as we shall come to. A nice feature about Venus is that its phase, that's the area of the surface that we see illuminated, changes obviously as it orbits the Sun, but so does its distance. The sort of apparent angular size of the surface that we see illuminated stays more or less constant, and so Venus remains at about magnitude minus 4.2 to 4.4 throughout much of the time that we see it. Okay, well let's come to the highlights of this month. Um, Back to Saturn to start with, and this really is something For those who have a reasonable sized telescope. One advantage of having the rings almost edge on is that there's rather less glare from the light and that makes it easier to spot the satellites that orbit Saturn. And just rather nicely on June the 10th five of its satellites nicely line up to the east of Saturn and that should make a very nice sight in a telescope of perhaps six or more inches although you'll see some of the brighter ones even with a smaller telescope. You should easily spot Titan at magnitude 8.4 and Rhea at magnitude 9.8. A bit harder are Dione at plus 10.5 and Tethys at plus 10.3. And if you've perhaps got an 8 or 10 inch telescope, maybe you'll get Enceladus as well at plus 11.8 magnitudes. Now, of course, the sky is never going to be that dark. And one trick to pick up faint star-like objects, as these satellites are, is to increase the magnification as much as you can, so you only really encompass Saturn and its satellites. And maybe even try and push Saturn a little bit off the field of view to prevent the glare. Because as you increase the magnification, the sky brightness background reduces but the brightness of the individual satellites stays the same. So they stand out better. That's a very good trick for looking at all sorts of point-like objects. You see them easiest at the highest magnifications you can use. Well, on June the 19th, I've mentioned that Mars and Venus are fairly close together in the pre-dawn sky. And in fact, on the 19th, Venus passes just two degrees below Mars. And you also rather nicely have a thin crescent moon lying just 7 degrees up and to the right of Mars. So if you don't mind getting up pretty early, at about 3.30 UT, you have a chance of seeing that. Neptune is very close to Jupiter this month. And on June the 4th, Neptune at magnitude 7.9, so that should be visible in binoculars, lies up and to the right of Jupiter, which has a magnitude of minus 2.5. It'll make up a very nice triangle with Jupiter and a 5.1 magnitude star Mu Capricornus, which is down to its lower right. So on the 4th of June, you get quite a nice little equilateral triangle. And given the transparent sky, you should easily spot it in 8 by 40 binoculars, just half a degree away from Jupiter. Obviously, as uh, Neptune doesn't move across the sky very quickly, it remains very close to Mu Capricornus throughout the month. But during that time, Jupiter moves somewhat further to the left. And just one final thing to say. June is a very good time to spot what are called noctilucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesospheric clouds and are most commonly seen in deep twilight towards the north from our latitude in the United Kingdom or anywhere between about latitude plus 50 to plus 70. They're the highest clouds that we can see in the atmosphere, in fact lying at heights of about 50 miles or 80 kilometers. They're normally too faint to be seen, and we only really see them when they're illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, and that happens in midsummer, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. It's a bit like you see the International Space Station for a few hours after sunset and perhaps an hour or so before dawn. It has to be high enough to be lit up whilst the sky is dark. Noctilucent clouds aren't fully understood and they seem to be increasing in both frequency, brightness and extent. Either more of them visible now than there have been in the past. Uh, and no one actually knows why. Some think it might be due to climate change. So look, on a clear, dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky, a while or so after sunset, of course, just take a look towards the north, and you never know, you might spot them. So that ends the section for the northern hemisphere listeners, but as usual, I'm saying something too for those that live in the southern hemisphere. And of course, in complete contrast, if June is one of the worst months in a sense for us to observe the heavens, it's one of the very best. In the southern hemisphere and it's not just because it's actually dark it's because some of the most beautiful parts of the sky become visible to them now if they look to the north from the southern hemisphere you will actually see leo of course upside down and saturn lying above it so that's in a good position to see but looking to the south you have the most beautiful skyscape that i think i've ever seen and i've only ever seen it once when i was in south africa Because the Milky Way is running, arcing across the southern sky, you have Scorpius with its bright red star Antares above Sagittarius down on the southeast. High up in the sky you have Crooks, the southern cross, and Centaurus. I've talked about those before. And then over towards the southwest, that beautiful region around Carina and Vela with the Eta Carina Nebula shining really quite brightly. Low in the south, just to the west of south, in fact, we have above the south the small Magellanic Cloud, up and to the right the large Magellanic Cloud, with this rather lovely nebula called the Tarantula Nebula, um, Auto called 30 Doradus, in fact, because there's a little cluster of stars there that they thought was a star and called it 30 Doradus as one star. It is an enormous region of star formation, much, much larger than the Orion Nebula that we see in the Northern Hemisphere. And it is where, in 1987, we observed a supernova. Finally, just a quick word about Sagittarius, the teapot. If you imagine water pouring out of the spout of the teapot, it actually falls across a rather lovely open cluster called M7. Up to the left of that is another open cluster called M6, two very nice ones to observe with binoculars. And above the teapot and just a bit to the right is one of the brightest regions of nebulosity we have in the Milky Way. It's called the Lagoon Nebula. And that's a very rich and beautiful region to observe with binoculars. To be honest, anyone who's living in the Northern Hemisphere, I would say get on a plane, go south either to somewhere around Cape Town and see the southern sky at its very best this month.
1: Thanks, Ian. Now we move on to our listener feedback. What have we got then, guys?
7: First of all, we've had some posts this month. Um, first up is a postcard from Toronto from Kate McLean, who has managed to listen to all of the Jobcasts in just over a year, which I think is quite impressive. And what's more, she's enjoyed all of them. Uh, also, her and her 10-year-old daughter have started a Facebook group called Shinedown, uh, aiming to raise awareness about reducing light pollution and encouraging full cut-off lighting. So if you want to go onto Facebook and search for Shinedown, you should be able to find that.
1: And for those of you who don't know about full cut off lighting, uh it's an idea that street lamps are one of the worst culprits for light pollution. In fact well, really all over the world. Uh and you can have half cut off lighting which encourages all light uh to be horizontal and down. And then there's full cut off lighting which only shines the light down. Because if you uh, even with half cut off lighting you can still get the light scattered by atmospheric effects and that goes up into the sky and doesn't give us as good a view of the stars as it could be. And so it's a, it's a, it's something that's very well worth having a look at. So everyone go along to the Facebook group, join up and, uh, let's see if we can get our night skies in towns and cities back to what they should be.
2: And we've also had a letter this month, which is great. It came in a nice airmail envelope. It reminded me of pen friends when I was a lot younger. Oh, wow. I know. It's great. And it's from Pradeep Mohandas from Mumbai in India, and he's a space enthusiast who's recently started an amateur radio group in India called the Amateur Group of Radio Astronomers, or AGRA. And Pradeep downloads us via WAP onto his mobile phone and listens to us on the hustle and bustle of the Mumbai local train service. We really enjoy getting letters from our listeners and postcards, so please do keep sending them in.
1: Especially from all over the globe and hearing where you are listening to the Jodcast, whether it be outside Jodrell Bank or whether it be, yes, on the Mumbai train service so uh, what's been happening on the forum
2: on the last issue we mentioned a jodcast listener rob bowman who had an episode of the 365 days of astronomy podcast rapid eye in the forum he's done three episodes of the 365 days of astronomy podcast so go and have a listen to those we'll link to those from the show notes for this episode and also if anyone was listening and recognizes jodcast listener names they may have heard nick whitehead a jodcast listener who had an episode of 365 Days of Astronomy about the life of a proton, and that was really a good listen. That's in the middle of May, and again, we'll link to that on the show notes.
1: And if you are coming up on the 365 Days of Astronomy, then please let us know, and we'll be able to mention you in the show for that month.
7: So also on the forum, Joda the Oak, formerly known as Yoda the Oak, has started a list of abbreviations with contributions from Rapideye, Earth Unit, and Leloup. So if there's any jargon or abbreviations that we use in the Jogcast that you don't understand, head over to the forum and we'll sort that out for you.
2: And one other thing I'd like to mention about podcasts, I recommend that our listeners check out the 60 Symbols video podcast from the University of Nottingham. They're gradually going through a whole lot of different science symbols. Previous ones have already included C, the speed of light, big G, the gravitational constant, gamma, which is a symbol for a photon, and they're really, really good short videos about those symbols, so go check them out.
1: Other things to check out, uh, please do uh, join our group on Facebook. Uh, You can get to it via Jodcast.net forward slash Facebook.
7: You can check out the forum at forum.jodcast.net.
2: You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast.
1: Or on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast. So that brings us to the end of this month's issue. Uh, Thanks, of course, to Mike Lockwood, Jim Hinton and Sam Bates and also to Dave McIver for doing the intro and outro. My apologies to Shakespeare. So, until next time, Jod on!
2: Bye, everyone. Bye.
0: When, in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I alone beweep my outcast state, And trouble deaf counsels with my bootless cries, And look upon myself, And curse my fate. Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, Featured like him, like him with friends possessed, Desiring this man's art and telescope, With what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself, almost despising, Happily I download thee, and then my state, Like the lark at break of day arising, From sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. The jodcast knowledge hearkens such wealth brings, that then I scorned to change my state with kings.